Okay, please open your Bibles to Acts 21. Let's start today's broadcast, if we may, in verse 1. And it came to pass that after we were gotten from them and are launched, we came the straight course unto Koz, and the day following unto Rhodes, and from thence unto Patara. And finding a ship sailing over unto Phoenicia, we went abroad and set forth. Once again, Paul and co are on their travels, and the Mediterranean has been sighted from verse 1. And these are real places, incidentally. In fact, let me say this to you, that if you can get a hold of the Book of Mormon, I don't recommend it, but if you could, and if you were able to read it, you will find many places that are written about, spoken about in the Book of Mormon. And for many years, Mormons believed that such places existed. And some years ago, the Smithsonian Institute in Washington put a paper out. They made it clear that these towns, these cities, these peoples, such civilizations didn't exist. They were made up, fictional, of course. And the background to the Book of Mormon, very briefly, would be this, that a man called Reverend Spaulding wrote it, and a smith came along, a known con man, and literally bought the book, bought the originals, if you will, and offered it to the world as being the second testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. Blasphemy, of course. But my point is this, that if you were to read Acts 21 in the first century, or if you are reading it this morning in the 21st century, you could go back and follow in the steps of Paul the Apostle. Such places were real. But Dr. Luke, verse 1, we were gotten from them, we came with a straight course, we went abroad and set forth, is back on the scene. And sometimes Luke seems to be in the passenger seat with Paul, other times he seems to be absent. Not quite sure what the purpose of that is. Let's read on, please. Take a look, if you will, at verse 3. Now, when we had discovered Cyprus, we left it on the left hand and sailed into Syria and landed at Tyre. There the ship was to unlaid her burden. Tyre, Syria, Middle East, and Tyre, for memory, is Lebanon. Syria is still Syria. And it is helpful to get, on the one hand, an original map from the first century and a modern map, because some of these Towns, cities, places have changed name. For example, Assyria is modern-day Iraq. Persia is modern-day Iran. And Petra, from memory, is modern-day Jordan. These countries were named such countries by the British Empire in the 19th century or shortly after. So it is helpful to get hold of a map and try and work out where these places are. But one last time, the Book of Mormon lists all these places, and Mormons believe that such places exist. In fact, they believe that Christ went to America and preached to the Native Americans. And yet the truth of the matter is that he won't come back until Israel says, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And on top of that, he'll only come back for the church, being the rapture, of course. But let's not get off script. Look at verse 4, please. And finding disciples, we tarried there seven days. Who said to Paul, through the Spirit... That he should not go up to Jerusalem. This is very interesting to me because you've got certain disciples, just Bible believers, telling Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. And it says how we, Dr. Luke and Co., tarried there seven days. All this traveling that Paul was doing and reading these verses, I think to myself that Dr. Luke was almost like a travel guide. We went here, we went there, we did this, we did that. 
Always on the move, never sitting around, licking their wounds, always pounding the street, trying to get people saved. Let me say this to you very quickly, that if you've stumbled, if you have hit rock bottom, or you've gone into a cul-de-sac, or you're not sure what to do, just keep going. Don't sit around licking your wounds. Get up and keep going. The early church were always doing something. But, one more time from verse 4, And finding disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. This is a warning. And this sometimes gets cited by some of the brethren, including myself, to show one or two things. Number one, that Paul wasn't sinless. And I have a lot of respect for Paul. And I've said it before, i said it again, that what he has forgotten, what he forgot, we will never know. And yet he set the bar very high. He could say, follow me as I follow Christ. And yet here, he has been told through the brethren, through the disciples, not to go up to Jerusalem. But let's read on. Five. And when we had accomplished those days, we departed and went our way. And they all brought us on our way with wives and children to we were out of the city. And we kneeled down on the shore and prayed. Public worship is sometimes a good thing. It's sometimes good to go into a restaurant and bow your heads and say grace. Sometimes it's good for people to see that. Now, not always. And sometimes believers feel uncomfortable doing that in public. I understand that. But I remember one old preacher, and he said, uh, somebody wrote to him about praying in public, saying grace, for example. And uh, he said, yes, he was all for it. And uh, he went to somebody's house, Christian family, and the food was put on the table, and they started to eat straight away. And he made a remark to somebody how they were just like the animals. Food on the table, food on the floor, and they're just eating without any thanks to the Lord. And sometimes that is also something we should be mindful of. It does come down to one's own liberty, one's own conscience. But here you've got a group of brethren being brought on their way with wives and children. Till we were all out of the city, and we kneeled down on the shore and prayed. I'm in two minds about this kind of thing, if I'm honest with you. We are told to give thanks to the Lord always. We are told to never cease praying. And yet, sometimes you can cause a weaker Christian to stumble if you make an issue out of public worship. And I'm still thinking of grace and public places. But let's read on. Maybe I'll come back to that thought. Look at verse 6, please. And when we had taken our leave one of another, we took ship. And they returned home again. And when we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus and saluted the brethren and abode with them one day. And the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea. And we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven and abode with him. Philip the Evangelist from Acts chapter 6. And here he is at home with his four virgin daughters and it's interesting when we read these verses because we are very mindful of 1 Corinthians 12 going into 14, how women are to be silent in the churches. I'll come back to thoughts in a minute. Look at verse 9, please. And the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. Mary, the mother of the Lord, would prophesy. And sometimes that gets overlooked. Her cousin Elizabeth would also prophesy. Both found in Luke chapter 1. Mary and Elizabeth were Jewish women. And part of what they would prophesy about was a worship of the Lord and b concerning certain future events. But they are not in the same category as the male prophets like Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Isaiah. On top of that, 
we were told from Matthew 11:13 how all of the law and the prophets were until John the Baptist. And yet they still prophesied. The same man, Philip, had four daughters, virgins, perpetual virgins, which did prophecy or did prophesy. They prophesied. They praised the Lord. And perhaps they were able to fill in the gaps because we are still waiting around this time for the New Testament to be written. But 1 Corinthians 14 tells us that women are to be silent in the churches concerning the speaking of tongues. Now women can pray in a typical fellowship. They can sing in a typical fellowship, but they can't preach. They can't be teachers and they certainly cannot speak in tongues. But like I've been telling you over the last 11 months now, over the last 49 broadcasts that this book acts of the apostles is a transitional book and therefore when we read it if we've got any sense we will take it from a historical perspective not doctrinal we can't take it doctrinally parts of it are going to be prophetical of course parts spiritual always spiritual you can take any verse in the word of god and take it or teach it from a spiritual perspective but historical be the best way to exegete these verses take a look at verse 10 please and as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. Prophet, you think of the Old Testament greats. Prophecy, prophesying, verse 9, you think of the Old Testament greats. But like I say, the Old Testament greats, their role ceased around Matthew chapter 11. And here Agabus, I think, is going to fill in the gaps. Because the apostles are still receiving revelations from the Lord, because most of the, Old, uh, because most of the New Testament books hadn't yet been written, there was a need to further expound, to fill in the gaps, if you will. And sometimes that's a good thing, sometimes it's not. For example, if you were to get hold of some Gnostic writings, let's see now, from the late 1st century going into the 2nd century, you will come across certain groups which would have you believe that the Word of God is all very helpful, but on top of that you need additional revelation. And these Gnostics would have you believe that they are the recipients of additional revelations. I watched a movie some weeks ago called September Dawn. It's a true story concerning an event which took place in 1857. And this went down in history as an awful massacre. And very briefly, a group of Mormons under the leadership of Brigham Young on orders, which he gave to his stepson, or adopted son I should say, a man called Lee, they massacred 120 men, women and children, Bible-believing Christians who were trying to get from A to B and they happened to go through Mormon land. And the reason I'm saying this is, is because the Mormons believed that God spoke to them, that he gave them revelation. And the revelation that he gave Young and others was to massacre 120 men, women and children. Well, of course, we know that such revelation never came. And the movie goes on to explain the politics behind this awful massacre. True story. Again, not making it up. This is a true story. And this is the problem. When you are in a system, when you don't take the word of God seriously, when you listen to what people tell you and never examine the scriptures to be sure, like you're told to from Acts 17, whether or not they speak for the Lord. And here, Agabus has been raised up by the Holy Ghost to fill the gaps, to assist the apostles and local assemblies, which were autonomous how to live, how to function. And this man, Agabus, has come down from Judea. And verse 11 tells us, And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle, and bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, So should the Jews at Jerusalem 
bind the man that owneth his girdle, and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Verse 11 builds on verse 4. Certain disciples warn Paul to the Holy Ghost not to go up to Jerusalem. Agabus comes and further expounds on that. But again, please understand one thing that we're reading this 2,000 years on. And therefore, I don't think, I don't believe that prophets in the sense of Agabus or female prophets in the sense of Philip's four daughters are still relevant or needed. In fact, I got an email yesterday from somebody who had watched my Ephesians study. I got four emails by this person, I should say, pretty much uh, trying to correct me telling me that we still have prophets and apostles for today. Never mind the fact that Paul told you that the church is built, past tense, on the prophets and the apostles. And therefore we build on what they built. We build our ministries or our uh, Christian lives on what they have done for us. The foundation, of course, being Christ himself. And this person wanted me to somehow reevaluate my belief that prophets, in the sense of telling the future or apostles in the sense of being eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ are still for today. I don't believe it. There are no apostles today. There are no prophets in the sense of being able to foretell the future, to predict future events. You don't need those people. We have the word of God. But we have teachers and evangelists, but prophets and apostles, I don't think so. But more fascinating to me, more relevant to the text this morning, is one more time, verse 4 and verse 11, showing us clearly how the Lord is warning Paul through third parties not to go up to Jerusalem. Look at verse 12. When we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem because they're going to arrest him. They're going to detain him. He's their beloved leader. He's a great man of God. Let's read on, 13. Then Paul answered, What mean you to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. There's no ambiguity whatsoever concerning A, Paul's trust in the Lord, B, his love of the Lord, and C, his salvation. Why do you break my heart? For I am ready, right here, right now, not to be bound only, literally detained, handcuffed, tied up, but also to die at Jerusalem, the eternal city where Christ, of course, was crucified, for the name of the Lord Jesus. That term again, the name of the Lord Jesus, to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus means with the authority of the Lord Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 14. And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. Romans 8.28 also comes to my mind how all things work together for good to those that love God, to those which are the called according to his purpose. Those that are called to his purpose, those that are saved, Everything works together for good. And he get a warning not to go up. And Paul ignores that warning. So he's in the same boat as Peter was back from Acts chapter 10. What I tell you to eat, eat. Don't call something unclean which is no longer unclean. Do this, do that. And Paul, excuse me, Peter starts to argue with the Lord. Back in Acts 10 and here Paul is disobeying a commandment. This wasn't a suggestion by the way. This was a commandment not to go up to Jerusalem. And this shows the free will of man. This shows the two natures in the believer being Paul. And he would lament from uh, Romans 7 how he did things he didn't want to do and what he wanted to do he didn't do. And this also demonstrates how, on the one hand, the Lord's sovereignty is in play here and man's free will is running simultaneous. Now, I don't understand that. 
We weren't told to understand these things, but we were told to believe them. But his friends ceased saying, 14, one more time, the will of the Lord be done. Okay, Paul, they say to him, you know best, you are an apostle, and yet, technically speaking, you are disobeying the Holy Ghost. And also this is fascinating to me because the Lord is working behind the scenes. On the one hand, he says, don't go up. If you go up, they're going to detain you. They're going to torture you. They're going to whip you so on and so forth. And Paul says, that's okay, Lord. I'm okay about it. If I die, I die, so on and so forth. And the Lord is, is still able to use that. Romans eight twenty all my time. All things work together for good. To those that love God, to those which are the called according to his purpose. There's also an account back in the Old Testament when David is inquiring about Saul. And he says to the Lord, if I go here or if I go there, will Saul detain me? And the Lord says, yes, he will. And will I be uh, interrogated? And the Lord says, yes, you will. And therefore, David has to change tracks. And he does. And the Lord changes the overall picture of what was about to occur. This is a very deep subject. I don't quite understand how the free will of man and the Lord's sovereignty work. This comes down to what we call middle knowledge. But no time to really discuss that this morning. Fifteen. And after those days, we took up our carriages and went up to Jerusalem. Very Victorian language. We took up our carriages. 16. There went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea and brought with them one Nason of Cyprus, an old disciple with whom we should lodge. What a great blessing it must be to arrive in eternity. And people say, where's Nason? Where's Agabus? Where's Dr. Luke? Where's Paul the Apostle? Of course, they are the well-known people, Luke and Paul. But Nason, who's he? Agabus, who was he? But they were important enough to be put into the word of God. This is what we call the unsung heroes, those that aren't necessarily known. And yet they were commended. They were written about. And here we are, 2,000 years later, reading about them. This also shows me one more time that God is happy to allow you to read about such people. Sometimes being a small spoke in a big wheel makes all the difference. Yes, it's great to be well-known. Yes, it's great to have your name, you know, in large letters, if you will. It's great to be recognized, if you will. But sometimes it's best to be not so well-known, to be one of the smaller unsung heroes. I think we were told we're not in James chapter 3, how those of us which are teachers are going to be pretty severely judged at the judgment seats of the Lord. That's why it's wise not to be a Bible teacher, and just to be some somebody who's not particularly well known. But I am interested, I guess, intrigued that once again we're reading about people who were not particularly well known and yet have found their way into the word of God. 17. And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. All these air miles that they are accumulating. But the point goes back to what I said at the beginning of this message that they were busy. They were doing something. And if you think just by going to church once or twice a week is somehow the pinnacle if you think that is the high point of being a christian you are greatly mistaken but here they are at jerusalem and the brethren have received us gladly 18 and the day following paul went in with us unto james and all the elders were present elders not priests james here is the lord's half brother 19 and when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. The early church, as you know, were predominantly Jewish. And they were suspicious of Gentiles. 
and Gentiles were suspicious of Jews. Not much has changed over the last 2,000 years. Most Jews are still suspicious of Gentiles, and most Gentiles are somewhat suspicious of Jews. There's not much of a bond between Jew and Gentile. And I will say this to you, that I've known a few Jews over the years, pre my salvation and post my salvation. And most of the Jews that I've known have been difficult to warm to. Now, I don't blame them. To be fair to the Jew, there's a lot of bad blood between Jew and Gentile. I mean, look at Napoleon, look at uh, Hitler, look at Stalin. They all killed many Jews. But the early church, as I say, was predominantly run by Jewish men. And the Gentiles are coming in in their droves. I mean, thousands of Gentiles are coming in to this new movement called the Way, called the Christian Church. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. I wonder if they were slightly envious as well. I mean, sure, Peter would go to the Jews and win Jews to the Lord, as would all of the other apostles, but Paul was something else. And people shouldn't be envious, and yet it is in man's nature. I think Cain was envious of Abel. I think sometimes people do read too much into something which shouldn't be there, meaning this, that we're all on the same team. In fact, Paul would tell you in, uh, I think it's Philippians, how some preach Christ of envy, some of contention, but he said, I glory that Christ is being preached. 20. When they heard it, they glorified the Lord. and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. Now James, as I say, was the Lord's half-brother. He's a saved Jew, speaking to Paul, another saved Jew. They're both filled with the Holy Ghost. Now listen to me now. They're both filled with the Holy Ghost, and yet there's going to be a division here. Because no two people are the same. As somebody once said, when two saved people agree on every point... One of those people isn't thinking. Paul and Barnabas would split over their difference concerning John Mark. Sometimes saved people will have to agree to disagree. Sometimes saved people cannot agree on minor issues or major issues. But here, James has two natures. James is a saved Jew, and yet James is not infallible. Like his mother Mary, she wasn't infallible. The latter part of 21 saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. I don't believe Paul preached that message. And yet word got back to James that Paul was telling Jewish believers, and maybe unsaved Jews, not to circumcise their children, Children being boys of course, neither to walk after the customs. What Paul probably told them was that doing such things wouldn't save them, which is true. And yet James has got this somewhat back to front. This is the problem when people say, I heard this, or I heard that, and it becomes like Chinese whispers, or telephone, if you will. Look at 22. What is it there for? The multitude must needs come together, for they were here, that thou art come. Put the record straight, Paul. There's a lot of confusion going around as to what you are preaching. And Paul was in a difficult situation. He was a faithful son of Abraham. He was a godly Jew, saved of course, and yet James should have known better. 23. Do therefore this, that we say to thee, we have four men which have a vow on them. Take them and purify thyself with them. And be at charges with them. 
that they may shade their heads, and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. Listen, nobody keeps the law. Keep your hand in Acts 21. Go back to Acts 15. This shows you how complex saved people are and how quickly people forget. Keep your hand in Acts 21. Look at Acts 15, 10. Peter speaking. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? He's saying we couldn't keep the law. Solomon told us that. David told you there's not a just man on the face of the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Go back to Acts 21, the latter part of 21, uh, excuse me, uh, 21, 24, the latter parts of Acts 21, 24. But that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. Who does James think he's talking to? What is going on here? Go to Romans chapter 3. If we lose this battle as Bible believers, we're going to go back under the law. And if we go back under the law, we're going to perish. Uh, Romans 3. Take a look, if you will, at 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is a knowledge of sin. Go back to Acts 21. But that thou thyself also walkest orderly. Yes, okay, here's a good testimony. And keepest the law. Impossible. You can't keep the law. Only Christ kept the law to perfection. And therefore James, as a saved Jew, is far from infallible. And James, like you and I, has two natures. And James, as far as I can see, is incorrect in what he's saying. And yet the same man would write the epistle of James, which is infallible. It's inspired by the Holy Ghost. His half-brother Jude would write the epistle of Jude. Again, it's infallible. It's inspired by the Holy Ghost. And yet these verses are once again warning us of the dangers of mixing law and grace. And I'll say this because I'm almost out of time, that... These verses, all 24, and we'll pick it up next week in Acts 21, 25, show the issue which the early church grappled with, law and grace. How do we keep the Jews on board? How do we stop the Jews from stumbling? At the same time, how do we bring the Gentiles further into the fold without causing them to stumble? And Paul, to his credit, went the extra mile, and he would tell us from 1 Corinthians chapter 9 how he was all things... To all men, Jew and Gentile, that he might win some to the Lord. And here Paul, I think, has the anointing of the Lord. He has the ability of the Lord. He has the permission of the Lord to do what he's about to do. The temple was still up and running. And it wouldn't be destroyed until 70 AD. And I think what the Lord allowed the Jews to do for those 40 years, from 30 to 70 AD, was to use the temple as a base, a place of worship. And the Lord allowed that first generation of Jewish believers to continue to go up to the temple in fact you were told at the end of i think it's luke's gospel how they went up to the temple daily rejoicing the early church would be would be meeting in the temple they would be using rooms which were on the compound of the temple to break bread and the lord said to the jewish the jewish believers from the first century pre-70 ad okay that's going to be fine that temple's there for you guys to worship but 70 ad it goes down and it's all over and the jewish remnant will evaporates and the gentile uh, remnant will take over the uh, the leadership of the church as we go into the tribulation i think gentiles are going to recede we're going to be raptured after we've been raptured the lord will turn to israel and the church will become almost jewish again that's the uh, text i get from uh, let's see now uh, revelation 11 concerning the 144,000. the church started jewish and the church will end jewish 
Of course, there'll be Gentiles that'll be parts of the body of Christ, but never forget that this is a Jewish book. But anyway, my final thoughts on this message this morning is how James was in error, and Paul, to his credit, went the extra mile, and Paul would try and use James's weakness to keep the Jewish believers on side, and at the same time, make it clear to the Gentile believers that they were not expected to do this whatsoever. And James, to his credit, does say that from verse 25. But I'm out of time, so we'll pick it up next week in Acts 21, verse 25.